Hey, everybody, and welcome back to D3 Glory Days. I'm Noah, that's Sue. It's great to be back in your podcast feeds this week. And uh, just a fun fact, we're coming up on our four-year anniversary. By the time this podcast hits your feed, it'll essentially be four years of D3 Glory Days. And so if you're new, welcome. If you've been here since the beginning, thanks for that. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to support this podcast, there's a few different ways to do it. The best way to do it is just to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, share the episode with a friend, a teammate, a coach, whoever, and just help spread the word of D3 Glory Days. If you want to take it a step further, you can support this podcast financially via the links in the podcast description. There's a link to our Venmo page. You can think of that as our internet hip jar if you appreciate this content. There's also a link to our Patreon, which is a monthly recurring subscription. If you'd really like to support D3 Glory Days, those funds are appreciated and help us grow our coverage of Division Three track and field and cross country. Thanks to everybody who has done those things in the past. We really appreciate it. This week, we're bringing you an interview from the Shot Put Rings, but Stu is going to introduce the guest. Yeah, today we welcome two-time national champion from UW-Eau Claire, Roger Steen. Roger just competed at USA's where he finished eighth overall. He's coming off a season where he threw a new personal best of 2208, 22 meters. He started his college career throwing 13 meters. And he goes into how he compartmentalizes each season, not each year. He's a football player and would just focus in on what he was doing at the present day. And he still takes that with him in his professional career as he looks at one season at a time. He doesn't want to get too far ahead of himself as he wants to focus on what he's doing in the current day. He brings a lot of experience to the track and field world, talks about what it's like to stay in the sport and have longevity as a field athlete. And he gives a little hint of what his summer throwing schedule will look like. Despite not wanting to get ahead of himself, he did say he will be competing next year as he will look to earn a spot on the U.S. Olympic team in the shot put. Yeah, Roger, a huge inspiration. Definitely has a growth mindset. And uh, my main takeaway was just how committed he is to his sport and fitting it into what is a really busy schedule. We get we go through a week in his life and it's crazy that he's able to fit in such high level training into kind of a hectic week between work and coaching and all those things. But anyway, thanks to Roger for sitting down with us here on D3 Glory Days. Sit back, relax, enjoy the episode, and we'll be back with you real soon. Here's to the glory days. All right. Welcome back to D3 Glory Days. We're now joined by two-time D3 champion, just finished eighth at USA's a week ago, Roger Steen from UW-Eau Claire. Roger, welcome to D3 Glory Days. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, excited to talk some throws. I was, you know, in the DMs, I mentioned that we've been trying to get you on and also get more throws on the podcast and with USA just happening and plus a, a pretty big PR, it felt like a good time to to bring you on. But let's get things started off with Eugene. You're just out there in USA's finished eighth. How did you feel that the meet went? You know, you're just coming off a big 22 meter PR. You know, you're going up against some pretty good dudes. You're a good dude. Like, what did you feel how the how the meet went? Uh, I mean, I thought it was a I've a little underperformed myself personally, but I mean, kind of just got to live and move on. So I threw about the same distance I did last year. 
But this year I had a better foul in round five, but they don't mark the fouls. So it is what it is, but just got to live and kind of move on. Yeah, there was a lot of talk on getting out to Eugene and stuff like that leading up to the trial. Did you feel any of that like annoyance of getting out there and just everything that happens to get to Eugene? Because it is kind of far from Eau Claire. I mean, it is a little bit, but now it's my third or fourth time like going out there. So I'm kind of used to the routine. And I actually have a teammate uh, who lives in Portland. So I stayed with him for a couple of days. He actually was a runner up in the heptathlon with me, Greg Peterson. So that was fun to catch up with him for a couple of days. And it's, makes it easier like that having great teammates and saves a little bit, like not having to spend money the first couple of days and hanging out with some of your great friends. So I don't get to see him often because now he lives in Portland, but. This is kind of a crazy time to be a track athlete with world champs and Olympics kind of coming in rapid succession. So, you know, heading into this meet and heading into like the future, where's your head at as, as a shot putter? Cause the schedule can get really busy if you want it to be. Yeah, so I talked to my uh, agent and my coach a bunch to kind of see when and where we should compete and everything, and we kind of kept it a little bit low profile before USA is trying to make the team. But, I mean, it didn't happen, but that's okay. Just got to keep grinding and get back in the weight room and keep my head up for the next couple competitions I have coming up here. But uh, And for the season-wise, I only go about one year at a time. I'm not going to like say, oh, I can go to 2028 and I don't know what my body can handle or I don't know like what that. So I'm going to take it one year at a time, reflect at the end of the season and then kind of regroup from there. I don't want to write a check that my body, I don't think can cash. So just one year at a time and one kind of one step at a time. Yeah, heading into this, I read an article from last year when you finished fifth and you, at the end of the last sentence, it said, and Roger's still unsure what, you know, the future of the sport holds. You kind of just alluded to it right there. But why do you have that mindset of kind of sticking to one season instead of kind of planning out in the future, just worried with how much, you know, toll it takes on you or you just kind of focus with where you are right now? A, a kind of a bit of both. So I want to focus, I kind of in the moment, I don't want to like overlook anything. So I want to take every meet to its full potential and throw as best I possibly can at every meet. But I'm I'm 31 years old now. I just don't know when kind of the threshold is. And it's just a lot of like pounding on the body. So a lot of weight room hours, a lot of practice hours, and just a lot of other things kind of going into it. So I don't want to, I don't want to force like look ahead too far and then like get banged up. I need something that I normally do every day and just kind of get knocked back instead of like, just take it at, take it at its face value and then just slowly kind of keep moving forward instead of overlooking little things. Let, I mean, let's talk about longevity for a little bit. you you mentioned you're 31. We were actually in college at the same time. What, especially in field events, I feel like there's not a lot of support for field events post-collegiately. And so people don't tend to have long post-collegiate careers, but you've been doing this at a high level for a long time now. What, what's kept you in it year after year? Well, I'll just, uh, so when I was done competing from college, I had a friend of mine, Nick Botts from Oshkosh. He threw and went to indoor USA's a couple of times. I saw him place in fourth or fifth. So like he went 1940 at the time and I threw farther and I threw a little bit farther than he did in college. So I thought, oh, maybe I can keep going for that. And that led me, led me to throw in 2016 where I went 1997 because I didn't play football that fall. So I did both in college. But so after not playing football the fall of 2015 and just focus on track for that whole year PR and actually made the trials in 2016 so that was pretty fun and then in at the trials in 2016 I talked to my current roommate 
and now he's kind of my coach and he's my lifting partner, Kurt Jensen. So we started uh, talking in 2016. He said, Hey, I'm going to move to Bloomer, Wisconsin. Do you know where that is? And I'm like, that's 20 miles from Eau Claire. Yes, I know exactly where Bloomer is. So we started talking then and kind of hit it off and we've been training together ever since. So he actually went 2165 and 2018. So kind of, we were training together, throwing together. So it was just nice having somebody else there kind of doing the things. And when he started going to Europe and Brazil and all those different places, I'm like, well, I can't give up now. I feel like I'm in a good trajectory. I'm getting stronger, like getting better in the circle. So I'm just kind of too stubborn, I think, to give it up too. That probably doesn't help anything. But having a training partner there and just somebody who went through some of it, like, was awesome to have and just kind of a good guidance. And he is a freak athlete, Curtis, super strong and just one of my best friends. And I just thought in the back of my head, like, I can do a couple things better than him. I might be able to throw farther than him. So, and I passed it this year when I went 2209 or yeah, 2208. So I passed in this year, but. It was nice having that other person and just kind of too stubborn to quit kind of thing. And I think too, Noah mentioned like support for field event athletes, you know, biggest thing is like, you know, having the implements, having a circle, having a ring, you're coaching at Eau Claire, you know, and had the ability to have, you know, practice partners, you have a facility. How impactful has that been, you know, not only for your career, but also your professional and coaching career? It's awesome. So our head coach, Chip Schneider is very, open about it and he's totally fine with like when I can get in a new facility and everything. So now I'm officially part of the coaching staff. Like I was a volunteer assistant for the first couple of years then I've been on staff the last thing four, but he just is so open about it and likes that. Cause you kind of, the athletes kind of see, Hey, you can do this from this level. So it doesn't matter where you're from. You can always go to the next level. So that's, Chip is super open about it. So is our head throws coach, Paul Conlon. So he's been at Eau Claire for 27 years, I think now, or 26 years. And he actually has an All-American streak of the last, I want to say it's almost 21 years straight of having at least one All-American indoor-outdoor for, for Division Three. It's like, it's, it's pretty good, especially like in the WIAC and everything else. So we've, we've kind of had a great culture built up and like all the coaches are some of my best friends. Like those are the most people I talk to like on a daily basis and everything. And I have a full-time job also that I do, but I work at a group home with mentally disabled adults. So I do that for a good 60 hours a week and or more and uh, just kind of fit training in and fit practice in and chip super laid back. If I have to miss a track meet here, miss a track meet there, like for work or everything else. And, they're just super accommodating. So are my bosses. So the owners are my bosses of it essentially at the group home. So it's just awesome and very flexible. And they're both, they're all very supporting for everything that I want to do. Wow. So you're, you're very busy. You mentioned fitting track into 60 plus hour work weeks. Can you kind of walk us through a, a standard day in your life? Uh, yeah, I can go through a standard day or do you want to go through like a week kind of schedule? Whatever you think would be more insightful into your life. <laughs> Uh, well, I work Sunday morning, normally seven to three or eight to three. And then I work out Sunday night and then, uh, Monday morning is work seven to three in the morning, go to practice and throw on Monday, work seven to three on Tuesday. And I normally have an off day Tuesday or like a rehab kind of day. So like hurdle mobility, kind of just like whatever bumps and bruises I have a lot of stretching and just kind of like keep my body healthy. Then I'll be at practice. So I'll help the athletes like through their practice and everything else and watch them. 
and then I'll work seven to three again on Wednesday and then I'll throw again on Wednesday and then like either with the team or like a separate just kind of all depends on my schedule and everything. I'll work again on Thursday morning, go to practice and either throw a little bit, kind of like a mock competition or just kind of like a travel day type of deal and then do more hurdle mobility and stretching and then I'll lift again on Friday and work normally work Friday morning and then I normally sometimes pull a night shift on Saturday just to kind of boost the numbers up throughout the week so but so, so I leave Saturday open mostly for either my competitions or going to the track meet to coach our division three athletes at Eau Claire so dang have you ever thought like what you could do if you didn't work that main job and like just focused fully on training or you feel like that kind of helps you kind of structure your day that way? Well, I think, yeah, I think it kind of helps with the structure. So I have like, and that, and I really like to kind of like give back. So like, that's why I'm still coaching. I love like giving back to kind of the next generation of throwers and everything else, but it also like kind of, it's just great for like me helping like individuals. So I can help them like, like cook clean and kind of do all like the daily activities and kind of help them, them get through life. So it's kind of rewarding that way to kind of, and then break it up too. So I don't have to just focus on track all the time. And like, Oh, track's my only thing. Having my job makes track like fun and something that I want to do instead of like, Oh, I have to go do this. Cause if I don't make money, I can't do this or I can't do that. So like this really helps with like the work-life balance kind of thing is like work fun balance, I should say, because <laughs> my, uh, my job like kind of breaks it up and just like allows me the freedom to kind of do what I want and don't have to like, like uber focus. Like I'm still moving on in life without putting everything else aside and just throwing. From like a logistical standpoint, you know, obviously your throwing is important, your lifting is important, but especially for throwers, your like caloric intake and nutrition is super important. So when you're kind of on the go all day, how do you make sure you're eating enough and how do you, what's like your food strategy during a busy day? So like, one benefit with my job is I do the grocery shopping for my group home. So we always get normally a quarter cow every month or two. So like I, so when I make meals for the guys, I also make meals for myself. So like we go through probably about 40 or 50 eggs a week and like go through a lot of ground beef and they, they also have like bacon and much other things. So like, I mean, I don't want to say I take advantage of my job, but like they pay for the food. So it's kind of really nice to kind of like, offset that so i don't have to pay for every single meal an added benefit to the job yep well you know speaking of kind of your your rise you got a lot of excuse me you had a lot of buzz once you broke 22 meters 2208 i saw there's a youtube video from throws university he was kind of breaking down your form and how you've kind of evolved over the time he also claimed that you were potentially a top five top 10 strongest thrower in the world right now what how much weight are you moving on, you know, squat or your main, your main, uh, lifts? Say, I think the only thing I'd have maybe in the top 10 would be my squat. I'm very horrible at bench and I dislocated my wrist, uh, like in 2018, like around Christmas time. So I don't catch a clean anymore. I just do like kind of clean pulls and like snatch pulls just up high enough, but my squat would probably be my best thing. And like my, my, throws coach Kurt we can we're guessing right now between about seven 780 and 800 is like we're kind of guessing for like if I did if I did like a single or so like leading up to USA's I did 685 for a set of five so like that was like pretty close and I'm very good at like peaking kind of the five rep range so 
that's that's my best of the squad. That's about the only one that I would say I'm in the top maybe 10, 10 or 12 is what I'd guess, but I'm not very good at bench and my deadlift is not very good, but we only do that kind of in the off season to kind of prep my body for throwing and everything else. Throwers love coming on this podcast because like our audience is primarily distance runners. And so you can basically say any number you want and everybody out there just be like, whoa. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how many plates that is on a bar. And it's like, this seems insane. It, I only count one side of the bar. So it's either normally seven or a little bit more like on one Jesus. side. But, yeah, that, that, that's how I handle it usually too. I just count <laughs> the one, just count the one side of the bar. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I, um, and I can't lie on this thing anyway. I know Kurt will be listening to it. If not, he'd give me a bunch of guff if I <laughs> lie or skew my numbers or anything like that. So I got to keep it honest. I want to go back to USA's a little bit. You know, you had that twenty two oh eight heading into the meet, and looking at you know how USA shook out, that would have put you, you know, fighting for that third spot, even that second spot, pretty comfortably. Did did having that twenty two PR heading into the meet add any pressure? I mean, I don't think so. I try to keep every like meet kind of in the same like aspect. I don't try to like prioritize one meet or another, but I mean, it is, it is USA. So it is like kind of the main meet that we train for like throughout the year, but I just did not execute like kind of on the day. So like I was actually training really well leading into it. I just didn't execute on the day, unfortunately, but I still went close to 70 feet, like on a bad day. So I guess you can kind of take apples and oranges a little bit. So like take the good and the bad, but I'll just have to kind of regroup and refocus for the next one. I like talking to field event athletes because I think there's so much more technical skill, obviously compared to like running events, I guess maybe except for the hurdles. Can you take us through what it means to like execute on a throw? Like, is it your form? Is it the way your release point, you know, take us through like what that execution looks like to you. So what we're focused on right now is kind of my direction from the back of the circle with my kind of rotation energy. So with my right leg and left leg kind of pairing those together, since I don't have a very big stand throw or very big bench, it kind of like, I can't really like rely on like my weight room numbers. I got to use my strength, which is getting across the circle and being explosive and like acceleration in the middle. I have very good body awareness. So I kind of know where the shot is like during the throw and all that. So I try to just pair up my legs with kind of like accelerating and like staying on the shot as long as I can. And is it true? Like maybe for your 2208, when you, when you threw it, like, did you know, like once you released it, like it was a good one? Yeah. So it's, it's weird. Everybody says like, it's really hard to catch up with the shot put, like when you're trying to extend on it all the way, like and fully like finish over the toe board and everything. Like, it was having a hard time because my legs and my hips were turning so fast. Like I couldn't keep up with the shot. So like I felt a long push on it, but I didn't feel like super snappy, like an aggressive with it, but it just kept, like I just pushed for such a long time that the implement just went a really long way. At the beginning of the interview, you kind of teased a European season and I want to get to that, but we're going to press pause on, on the rest of your year for now. And I think we want to go way back and kind of figure out where you come from before we find out where you're going. And so if you could kind of take us back to maybe like the end of your high school career, I know that's, that's going back a little ways, but just kind of who you were as a person and an athlete and kind of where your head was heading into college athletics. So I actually was not recruited for track. I did not uh, fill out any uh, 
waivers or like questionnaires or any of that stuff. I was actually going to Eau Claire to play football. And so I played football my freshman year and a guy on the team named Thurgood Dennis, who had used to have the 60 record, the hundred, the close to the hundred record for four division three until Sam broke him this past year. Uh, he was playing football with me and he, he convinced me to go out. He's like, Hey, I'm going to go out for track. You should try to come out with me. Cause I've, I met him the summer before at a couple of football camps and we were talking at Eau Claire and he's like, oh, I'm like, oh, I can go try it out. So I tried to, I went and talked to the throws coach. I'm like, Hey, coach common, you mind if I try out for the team? He's like, oh, I don't make that decision. You have to talk to the head coach outside. And he's like, he said it kind of like in a funny way, which at the time I didn't fully understand, but now I, I get it how laid back and just how fun the coaching staff is. So Paul said, you have to talk to the bald guy out on the inside of the football field. I'm like, okay, I guess that's who it is. So I went up and I was like, Hey coach Schneider, do you mind if I try out for the track team? So he stopped me right there. He's like, Hey, first off, my name is chip. You don't have to call me coach Schneider. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, might have a shroud. He's like, all right, what's your numbers in high school? I'm like, I threw 51 feet and then like 158 in the discus. He's like, all right, yeah, you can definitely try out. He's like, when do you want to start? I'm like, I have my throw shoes in my dorm room. I'll run, go get them, and I'll be back here in a little bit. And then Chip said that's kind of how history just started. So then after that, we were trying out for all of November. So I missed the first two weeks because football went the first two weeks of track and field. So or the first two weeks of like official team practice. So then I started the third week in November with Thurgood, the other football player. And so we were trying there and we'd go to practice and I'd go to the weight room and then he'd get back from his weight room session. And we weren't in the track locker room yet. So we were still in our football locker room and we would sit there and talk for a little bit after he's like, dude, I feel like I'm getting touched today. I'm like, I feel the same thing. I'm so far behind in the weight room, so far behind in the circle. Like, because I taught myself how to spin in high school. So I wasn't very technically advanced. I just kind of had some kind of horsepower and could kind of jump and kind of feel the shot. So we talked about how we were going to get cut for that first month, month and a half until we got the email that we made the team after cuts in December. So I know it's kind of surreal thinking about it now that Thurgood and I both were done at Eau Claire and we had eight individual national, like eight national titles to our name and then a team national title our senior year. So like, from thought we were getting cut in the fall of our freshman year to like ended pretty well our senior year, I think. Yeah, that's like some revisionist history. Like what where do you go if you do get cut? Like you just focus all in on football, would you try again? Like have you even thought like what would you have done if you'd gotten caught that freshman year? Like would you have tried again? I mean, I I think I would have, but I I don't know. Our there's just there's just so many ifs and buts to kind of go with that that I don't even know how to really answer. Yeah, because because I just kind of tried out on a whim that like Thurgood was trying out. I'm like, oh, I like Thurgood. And, like I was OK in track, so I thought it was pretty good. And then my mom pushed me as well. He's like, it keep you on a good similar schedule. You wouldn't get in trouble to do this and all that. So I'm like, all right. Yeah. So I'll... so I tried it and kind of the rest is history a little bit. Here's a plug. Also... Oh, sorry. But I also had some really great like senior like leaders on the team like when I was a freshman. So there was no juniors. And then we only had one sophomore at the time that ended up getting cut. But so the three seniors there have a national champion, two national runner up, another all American in the shot put. So like there were six or seven all Americans for that group of three guys when I was a freshman. So like I learned 
pretty early and that's kind of who I was comparing myself to. So that's kind of why I thought I was so bad. I didn't really see the stepping stones at the time. I just saw the finished product after four years of working out and everything. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm so far behind and tried to like catch up as fast as I could. So I thought how I could catch up and they said, you should probably gain some weight. So I went from 225 as a freshman, my, uh, my freshman fall, I finished my first freshman year, like 290, 295. So I gained like, instead of a freshman 15, it was close to like the freshman 60, 65 pounds or more. So that's insane. That's an insane amount that? of weight. I, I lived at the cafeteria. So back then at Eau Claire, we had all you can eat lower calf and upper calf and being a freshman, like you just went to the library, you went to the calf and you don't want to walk. So at Eau Claire, there's this big hill that divides upper campus and lower campus and the dorms are all on upper campus. And I didn't really want to walk up the hill every time. So if I had an hour or two break, I would just go to the cafeteria and just kind of hang out, eat. And like there would be other, always tables, either football guys or track people or everything else. And I could talk to anybody. So I was, I just kind of lived in the cafeteria. They told me to gain weight for both football and tracks. So I'm like, I guess I'll just keep eating and keep working out. So it just kind of worked out. What position were you playing in football? Uh, so I started a defensive end and line, and I finished my career as a nose guard. So, like, when you're putting on 70 pounds, you know, in the in the track season, are your football coaches seeing you and just, like, kind of wondering what's going on? Like, what, what was their reaction to your transformation? Uh, so not really. So we still did max outs and everything, like, in that fall. So I was, I was the strongest going to be sophomore kind of going into my class. So I still, I squatted close to like 620 pounds is going to be a sophomore bench 385. And like I cleaned close to I think 350 or 360. So like I was still getting strong, like while gaining the weight. So I wasn't really losing on either end. Wait, you're getting strong during track season and played football. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was goofy because back then we had actually morning practice. So I'd get up about 5.30, go to spring ball in the morning from 6 to 7.30, then go do all my classes, then be to track at about 4. So I'd be there from 4 to about 7.30 or 8, doing all their stuff during spring ball and all that. And then after I stopped that about a week and a half before conference, and then I had a big personal best like as a freshman and was All-American – or all sorry, All-Conference as a freshman, not All-American. I feel like your story – with your teammate should be like the biggest plug for letting football kids try out for the track and field team or having the football team, let them do track. Cause like you're getting better and you're helping yourself in track, but also in football, it's like, let these, I know there's some schools out there that like don't want to share athletes, but Holy cow, you should share your athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a little bit of plug for a while. They're trying to be kind of trying to kind of pull athletes for both. And, a couple other people tried to do it for a while, but then they kind of either just stuck in with one because they loved the other one or or uh, weren't very good at the other one. So it just, they had to kind of die it out. But I haven't heard of many other people to do that besides Thurgood and myself. So you mentioned, you know, that fear of being cut. You made the team, but I'm sure you made the team, but you're probably still feeling like you have to catch up on in terms of technique and you know, strength in the ring, but like, when did it really click for you that like, oh, the throwing shot could be, you know, one of my talents and not just something I do to stay in shape for football? Uh, I mean, probably the, probably my sophomore year, really, I went from, so at the end of my freshman year, I threw 1576, I think around there, 75. So 
I threw farther in my first year of college than I did it all through high school. So like that's just even I gained a four pound difference in shot from a 12 pound to a 16. I threw farther my first year. And the second year it kind of really jumped. So I went from I think 51 or 52 feet. I can't remember the exact, the, the metric went from 1570. I went to 17.5 as a sophomore indoor. So I gained that 1.75 a meter. And after that, like my football coaches were kind of a little laid back, like, all right, you got track season in the spring, like showed up for meetings, but you don't got to do like all like the extra practicing during that track season. So that's kind of when I got like the respect of like, the, of the football coaches to do both like at the highest levels I can. Yeah. That sophomore year, you made not only a jump, you know, in distance, but that was your first national meet when you're coming into it. I mean, you, you mentioned you had some seniors that you looked up to, but when you go from someone, you know, throwing what you were throwing as a freshman to then next time out, you're at the national meet. How did you handle that mentally? Well, it was kind of a funny story. So I have a, there was a lefty who was a year younger than me. His name's Alex Mess. So we went one, three, my senior year in the shot. And so that Wednesday we we're getting ready to drive down. Cause it's only in Chicago. So it's only about a five and a half, six hour drive from Eau Claire. And so we normally throw two rings next to each other. And I was walking out to retrieve my shot. And my, he's one of my best friends, Alex too. He shanked one to the left. I caught it in the hip the day before I left. So I like I was all bruised up in my hip and everything else, but we kind of threw Tiger Balm on, took some ibuprofen, and tried to just kind of ride the high. And actually had a big 0.25 of PR like on the on Nationals Day just by not overdoing it because I was I couldn't really with my bruised hip and everything. So so I didn't really have much expectations going into that one. So that I mean it was kind of surreal that way, but. I had some of my best friends from Oshkosh there. They they actually helped me check in the whole process. So like Pete Delzer and Nick Botts from Oshkosh, they walked me through check-in where you get your shoes checked out like and all that stuff just because I've never been there and there was no other thrower there. So we had to check in at 9 in the morning. Nobody else was coming to the track until like noon or 1 o'clock. So I was kind of going through with them. And one of the seniors stuck around for a fifth year to like graduate assistant coach. So Tony Segris was there. So he he actually was my roommate like during that time because we didn't have enough like other like athletes there for indoor. So we were, I always got to talk to him and I was always one of my closest like guy friends of kind of how to maneuver everything. He was a runner up in the weight throw and all American and the hammer as well. So like he, they kind of just helped me through it and it just kind of happened to play out on the day, which was awesome. Talk a little bit about what that, you know, being exposed to that level of competition at a national meet kind of did to your competitive mindset. Well, I don't know if it really, it didn't really start at nationals for me. It kind of was at conference. So at conference, we had Nick Botts, who was the national leader at the time at 1865. Pete Delzer, one, one of the last true great gliders in Division Three. I'll just throw that plug in. He was coaching for Carroll this past year, so I know he'll listen to this podcast and he'll get a little kick out of it. And and then Lewis Pryor, and then he had a couple other guys in the team, Nick Groskopf and some of them, like – so our our top five at indoor conference, I finished fifth. Four of us finished top eight at Division Three at indoors my sophomore year. So like it wasn't really that big of a difference because I saw those guys almost every single week. So like it never really it kind of dulled me down as like all oh, these great people like 
and all that stuff. Just because I saw them every week at every conference meet, either going to Stevens Point, going to Platteville, going to Stout. Like I just saw them every week. So like it was great, like just hanging out with them for the shot anyway. I mean, there's a lot more in the weight throw as well. I never qualified for the weight, but there was Grant in the weight and Pete was a two-time national champion in the weight throw and one time in the hammer. So he was very good, like all around as well. Yeah, what's that like having such strong conference competition? I mean, we've seen that today too in the throw. Still, the WIAC is you know having a bunch of All Americans and national champions. What's that do though? You know, at the national stage, like knowing you have at least conference competition is like a sense of calming, knowing that you know your competition already. It just makes it like fun. Like everybody's like, oh, beating a rival is so great, but like I love beating my friends even more because then you could just kind of throw it in their face later. Like I love competing with some of my best friends. So like, it was awesome. Like my, like going into it, my senior year, I was, it was myself. Colt was in Iowa. So I always see Colt for the last chance meets and all that stuff. And then it was Nick who's in the final. Uh, Alex was in the final. Uh, trying to think who else. Theron, Theron from Whitewater was in the final. So like we had a bunch of guys, just like a camaraderie, kind of like a fun thing to do instead of like, Oh, this is super serious. I look around and like make it just super fun and a great atmosphere. You mentioned earlier on the show that your senior year you focused only on track and stopped playing football. Did that kind of push pull between football and track start a couple of years earlier as you improved at shot put? Did that start to take your attention away from football? So I actually played four years of football and for my fifth year of school when I finished up. I was just doing it as by myself. So I didn't because okay. I was uneligible for that and the track team. Yeah. By your senior year, that's when you, you know, got your, your, both your national titles and you had a steady progression kind of throughout your entire college career. And you alluded to it earlier, how you kind of just focus in on, you know, one year at a time. Is that where that mentality of folks on one year at a time started? Cause like, it's almost like every single season you just had steady improvement, steady improvement, and then you finally, you know, capped it off with the victories. Yeah. So I don't know if it'd go by season. I think it'd more go by sports. So like as soon as done, I would kind of go right into football lifting for the summer. And then I would lose two or three in my summer because I'd have to go report for two days and then like get all ready for practice. And of course, winter break is kind of when the switch would happen because I would lose a couple weeks for winter break to track so early so like so it kind of switched per season for me the summer into like the fall would be just like focusing on football and like still trying to we were like throughout the lifts and everything else and then after that it would be switching for that be all the way through the end of the end of the spring until like track would be done so i kind of each step like after each season would kind of keep me like fresh that way and kind of like mentally so you know looking at your national meet results you, you kind of flirt with that, with the win for a while before it, it finally comes together in 2015 indoors. You finally win the, win the shot put with an 18.81. What, what did it feel like to kind of finally break through? You had a third, you had a second. What did that first national championship feel like? Well, it was kind of a double-edged sword because it happened in round six. For I think my teammate went from like ninth place place and then so we were kind of, we always kind of just hang out by ourselves at the national meet and kind of get ourselves like excited excited up and excited and everything and his name's alex mess the one i talked to earlier 
he comes over like you can't let me beat you at your last nationals. So then going in, I was three throwers after him, so I went eighteen eight and first and bumped him down to third. But uh, then I had to wait five or six throws. Kind of was like I knew had a great throw, but I knew some great guys were still in the field. Only was still in the field. Colt Feltus was still in there. Trevor Sutzman's like a lot of guys still had after me and same with Sean Eno. So like they had throws after me. So I kind of had to sit and wait. Like I throw ever like at the time I have a big reaction and everything else, but like, so Alex and I were kind of just sitting in the corner and we knew it was good when they got the steel tape national meet record at the time, but kind of all just came together for that one. And, it kind of all started like my career when I didn't place. That was the only meet I went to and I didn't place out lacrosse and actually finished runner up as a team. And I was supposed to score three and we lost by two. That still eats at me a little bit. But if I don't really have that outdoor kind of blunder my sophomore year, I don't think the junior happened of like me keep improving and staying like very, very hungry and everything else. So you mentioned right there, you know, that blunder has helped you improve. You know, I always ask athletes this because I think track athletes, track and field athletes tend to dwell on the downs, but how did you not dwell and come back and get better from like, what are tactics that you used that other athletes could use? Well, honestly, we kind of did it as like a team wise. So the guy I stayed with in Portland, he missed out of going to nationals that year as a freshman. And so got runner up in the 200. So we kind of made us like our bond a lot tighter than Cody did not finish as well as he wanted to in the open 400. Cody Prince, like band together as like a team. So like we had a great, a team goal. So we had a team meeting, like going into the fall expectations and like what we wanted out of the season, like kind of going forward. And we got another runner up finish in 2014 indoor at Nebraska and then outdoor Thurgood, kind of got a little tweaked hamstring. So uh, we just kind of got, we kept trying to go forward, but then knocked back a little bit and kind of would refocus it. Like our group was so strong between the girls and the guys. And like, we just had such a great, like, play atmosphere that we didn't want to let each other down. So it just kind of kept us, all of us forward. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that team atmosphere. I mean, like we keep going back to, you were afraid of being cut your freshman year. And now, you know, with the success you're having, you were a performance leader on the team. Um, so how did you step into that leadership role? I know you had some great mentors. Did did you feel like a leader or did it take some time? Well, I, like, I was always pretty of a loud kid. So like it kind of just naturally, like oh, they're pretty quiet. So like it kind of just, fell on my shoulders for a little while. Like I was kind of the leader as my, I was a team captain, I believe since my sophomore year on, I think. So I was a three-year team because I was kind of the head of the throws group. I was liked by everybody else and I could always go and communicate, be open with everything. So I never kind of like had like a backdoor agenda. I was always open and I'm horrible liar. So I just can't do any of that effectively. So it's just very, it's kind of a good role to step into. And then I had a great, the, a senior when I was a freshman, he was a great team captain. Like started a thing that we still do now is called like the blue goal, the blue goal kind of like weekly update. So it sends like a list of like who PR'd this week, your winner, how what they're all national ranked. So like I can't remember exactly what it's called right now. Kind of like a blue goal week, I'll get it. I might have to pull it up in my email quick because then I'll tell you the exact name of it. Yeah, so we still do that every week and 
get the updates and kind of laid the blueprint and I just kind of ran with it because I could always talk to everybody else and we're open about everything. We never really shied away from any of the questions. You know, it sounds like that was kind of a, a nice lead way into, you know, a coaching career for you. You mentioned you've been at Eau Claire now for a couple of, you know, you've been on staff for four years plus additional time volunteering. What's it like being a part of, you know, a coach where you've won a national championship, you know, you had the, the infamous tie in 2022 indoor after, you know, the four by four got the four by four had that DQ. You guys won outdoors with such a strong field contingent. You know, what's it like Ben on the other side for you? It's eye opening. A lot of stuff that you as an athlete that like gets done behind the scenes. And like, I just looked up quick. It's called the standard as well. We, we kind of get sent out, but it's pretty eye-opening. So Kurt, Paul, all coached our our current school record over Dave Kornack in the shop. He actually broke my national meet record as well. He went 1983 in 29. So like it was, it's weird how to see from yourself kind of going through it to all now going on behind the scenes. It was like all the travel details, all get everybody to and from the meets. Got to eat. Everybody's got to do this. And just like all the the busy stuff that you don't see as an athlete when you're just there. And I feel like, yeah, I don't know if I ever can repay what I've gotten from track and field. My best to do whatever I can to repay for how much, how many great people I've met, how many places I've been to, like great friends like in track and field. I want to talk to you a little bit about the 2016 U.S. Olympic trials. Um, that must have been, you know, kind of a mind blowing experience going there. You're the, you know, the D3 national champion. Talk us, talk us through a little bit, you know, getting getting that qualification mark for the U.S. Olympic trials and just how that experience went for you. So that, I mean, that's heck, that's seven or eight years ago now, being in 2016. But so I actually threw that meet in through my distance in Augustana, right? In, down south of us and went 1997 and they have a all standard at 2050 at the time so if you're 2050 you're automatically guaranteed in the meet and then the field at 24 so i had booked my ticket got a dorm room because i was not able to rent a hotel being so young i was at the time and no car so i had to fly into eugene and uh i got off the plane and that confirmation thing while I landed in Eugene is when I got the confirmation is like hey you've been accepted it was, it was in the top 24 but they didn't fill it at the time when I flew it for my flight about for the meets and then when I get there Adam Nelson is throwing Reese Hoff was throwing Jordan Clark Ryan Whiting's so like some of the guys I've seen on YouTube and have been the powerhouses 10 12 years have been like we're there practicing at the meet and it was just opening like, just like, oh, I've seen these guys on YouTube, seen these guys do this. I've tried to do that. I've tried to do their technique. I've tried to do what they're doing. And just, it's a little star right away, for sure. So I did not throw the best my first Olympic trials. You know, I went 19 low, I'm pretty sure, at the time. But it was it was more eye-opening. There's a lot more levels to this game that I didn't know about until I got to that meet. I think I had a really similar experience. I probably flew, I was in the 10K that year, and I think I probably flew in the same time you did because I was at the track doing like my free race strides while the shot putters were kind of out there throwing. And I remember seeing Reese Hoffman just being like, man, these guys are a different species of human. Like I'd never seen a professional shot putter up close until that moment. And I was like totally blown away by it. 
Oh yeah. And even now I'm still one of the shortest guys that are out there. So like you have such a wide kind of a ranges with like for a shot putter. You could be six six like Ryan is, or you could be around six foot like Joe, myself, and Triple are. So there's a wide variety kind of sizes and shapes for a professional shot putter. And until you see it up close, it's hard to like picture it. So as we, you know, you mentioned you're going out to Europe here. We'll have USA trials next year. I know you don't like to make decisions, you know, in a current season, but with where you're at right now, do you have a pulse on what you're going to do with your competitive career? I know I want to throw for next year. I just, it's going to be another Olympic trials year. And I made the semi-final 2021, but I didn't make the final final. Actually, my coach and my best friend, Kurt, he put me ninth when he finished eighth that year in 2021. So I didn't make the final shot. But so I want to, I know I want to throw next year for sure. Can you tell us, you mentioned you're heading off to, I think you mentioned Switzerland and Spain, either this week or next week. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it's like to travel to Europe for these meets, kind of why you do it and what you get out of it as an athlete? I mean, it's, this is kind of a part of track and field. So I'll get there. I leave for Switzerland tomorrow evening. I'll get there Tuesday about middle of the afternoon, their time. So it'll be about 15 hour camp travel day. I'll have a day to kind of adjust on the rest of the day, Wednesday, and I'll compete Thursday. So I might try to see kind of just walk around, see what's kind of tell and the, the track and everything to see like what is there for like sightseeing. But I do a whole lot because it's, this is kind of what I go over there for is to be at the meet, throw, get invited back. So is this a diamond league? Nope. So it's just a couple of class, like a, so Luzerne, Switzerland, and then in Madrid, Spain would be the couple. Yeah. It's pretty ideal though. A good travel to Europe, compete and, and see what you can do. That sounds like a fun summer. Yep. So I'll go this week for sure. And then I'll be off a couple. Then I'm going to go to Memphis for the American. Then there's a lot of downtime kind of in August just because that's when worlds are. So I won't be doing a whole and, and then we'll kind of see what happens after worlds. I have kind of a weird question. Do you, do you collect shot puts? Like, are you, are you like emotionally attacked, attached to certain implements? Do you have like a, a shelf of shot puts in your house? Not that would have to be a very strong shelf because yeah, <laughs> this year, last year, I had a perfect balance that I threw and it finally did not make weight at the end of my European trip. So I had to get a new gill shot and actually that one just, uh, just right now. So I either have to add a little weight or something like that. So I do not have like a shelf of shot books. I mean, I have, I have the videos. That's kind of what I have, like for memory wise, if not, be a lot of smelly wrist wraps some smelly shoes kind of keep it the videos is about all I really need. The videos don't smell. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great place to wrap Roger. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Good luck on your European tour and looking forward to watching you compete next year. Thank you guys very much. I love what you guys do and hopefully see you guys in division threes. And that's all for the four-year anniversary edition of D3 Glory Days. Thanks to Roger for sitting down with Stu and I for about an hour to recap his career. We really appreciated his insights. Leave a rating, leave a review, 
Share it with a friend. We really appreciate it. We'll be back in your feeds next Tuesday with another episode of D3 Glory Days. Until then, here's to the glory days.